You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. But you came up with some great ideas. So Snowy Owl is the first one for our holiday season. And this is just also known as the Great White Owl. What can they teach us? But the other really cool thing, too, as far as their range, is they've been recorded landing on boats that are way... Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. Okay, I, I did text you. I said this has to be the most beautiful bird we've covered to date. By far. By far. By far. And I texted you right back. I agree. It's pretty simple. <laughs> it's, it's so beautiful. The snowy owl. It is so beautiful. I, uh, breathtaking, breathtaking. Yes. Breathtaking. I am just moved beyond belief that we get to talk today all about snowies. Yay. Yes. Oh, they just beautiful, great intelligent, by you. charming. They have a huge cultural impact. Um, and just some would say magical. I guess you'll have to stay tuned to decide how you feel about snowies at the end of the podcast. But yeah. man, owls in general are one. cool, right? Yeah. I mean, everybody can agree about that. Yeah. Uh, but there's something special about snowies, uh, just beautiful. And, and there's so many fun, interesting facts to share about them today. It's just, it's going to be a great podcast. Yeah, I know. I know. It's, you know, we've said we, we want to do more birds. I'm trying to get in the holiday spirit. So you and I were brainstorming because we've covered some, you know, we still had the reindeer episode out there, the polar bears and some of the things from the Arctic Narwhal. that we covered. I don't know why narwhal. that's holiday like, but it reminds <laughs> me of the holidays. <laughs> I can still see a narwhal with the Santa hat on, but you came up with some great ideas. So snowy owl was the first one for our holiday season. And this is just also known as the great white owl or the Arctic owl. It's just so distinct and and just unique bird that lives in an extremely harsh environment. Well, and that you just took the words out of my mouth, literally, because I think what moved me most when I was researching snowies this past week was just incredible adaptations and just 
what it takes for them to live in those harsh conditions and be super successful as far as hunting goes and camouflage and my, their migration patterns and just staying alive and then keeping their young alive too. Mm-hmm. That'll be a real fun segment when we get to that. Uh, it's just, they have evolved some really, really cool tactics, different behavior. They have incredibly different behavior than a lot of other traditional owls species. So yeah, the learning was just like, blam, 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 blam this week. It, it made was, me wise, like owl wise, right? After all, yes. this, all this research this week, for sure. It, oh, and it was fun. It was fun. Like I really, oh, yeah. I mean, every the videos, week's fun, just watching videos yeah. and yeah, yeah. It's just, I mean, you know, every species is fun to learn about, but you know, these ones just, especially one from the Arctic and you're just trying to imagine them surviving up there and their strategies. It, it, yeah. It's going to be great. A lot of great info coming just really quickly. Just want to say welcome Chantel to Patreon. Thank you. You know, we just released kangaroos on there. You know, we also have special episodes for our Patreon only uh, supporters. We have the sperm whale on there. The sloth episode. I always forget like sloths. That was an amazing one. Meerkats fun. So if you want some extra content, you know, cup of cappuccino a month will support us and we give back because we did say that we, we sponsored two African penguin nests from our Patreon subscribers. So Yay. we went to yes. yeah, Stephanie Ar- Arnie's website and we, we actually went and purchased two nests. So two nests will be put out uh, in our Patreon and all creatures name. So thank you for that. And just thank you to our listeners. You know, Angie, I got some data this week. You know, now there's over 800,000 podcasts circulating around the planet. So just got to say thank you to our listeners because Angie and I, with this a couple of years ago, we would have never have, have guessed we'd be, you know, as popular as it is, you know, with us talking. You know, we normally rank in the top 1,000. You know, sometimes we bumped up in the top 500, almost hit 100 in a day. Top 100 podcasts in the world. That places us in the 0.001% of all podcasts. So thank you so much. I just, you know, it, it just, and you interact with us on social media, emails, Theo, you know, thanks for your email, you know, so anyways, thank you to our listeners. You know, we appreciate your support and we're going to keep doing it. We're going to keep doing it. Yes. Thank you so much. And yes, there's still a ton of room for growth for this podcast. Uh, they're obviously very hard to grow in theory. Mm-hmm. So it's mostly word of mouth. So please share with your friends, uh, do me a favor and uh, rate us on iTunes. We don't have any reviews from the month of December. So it'd be great. The more of those we have, the better it helps our podcast get into circulation and get on more people's platforms. And then they learn animals and how to love and conserve them. So yeah, please subscribe, rate and review. That's without doing Patreon or giving any money. That's the best way that you can help us so yeah uh, yeah yeah we appreciate it we appreciate it and to kick this one off angie you know we we went to madagascar last week so this week we're going to the arctic and i just always like to talk about the specific biome we've we've talked about it in polar bears we talked about it in walrus and we're going to talk a little bit about it here and you know, give some data. So I have some hard data on how global climate change is reducing the ice pack in the Arctic. It's a fact. This is fact. This is data. This is data from NASA, who we went up against for the top podcast in science this year. And I love telling people that. And I love telling people, even though we didn't win, 
NASA didn't win either. So (laughs) (laughs) right. We're right there with them. (laughs) The people that sent man to the moon and yeah, men and women in space has a rover on Mars right now running around. Their podcast also lost us with us. So anyways, (laughs) shout out to STEM talk. Amazing. (laughs) I know. I know. Um, I love telling that story though. They're like, no way. I'm like, I, yeah. Yeah, you know, they sent man to the moon and here me and Angie are. But I think the Arctic, it, it's important to to talk about. And, you know, here it is, the, the NASA slide that I have right in front of me talking about, you know, global carbon emissions. And they have data from 800,000 years ago, you know, taking ice core samples from the Antarctica. And they, you know, you see this fluctuation in carbon and then they show the levels in the 1950s to the last 70 years. And so right now it's just, it's going straight up, straight up, not at a, at an incline, slight incline. It's going straight up like they're shooting it to the moon. So that is what has scientists really concerned. Now, how that affects, if you've listened to this podcast, we've talked about it before that the poles are warming quicker than say the equatorial plane. So that's why we're seeing massive loss of ice in Antarctica and up here in the North in the Arctic. So the recent data, this is data that through this year going into December, 2019, that the ice pack is the third lowest on satellite record. And this is in the past 40, 50 years, well, in the seventies, late seventies is when they started recording this. So that's going almost 40 years, 40 years of, of ice sheet data or ice pack data today. In going November, December 2019, there's about 9.33 million square kilometers or 3.6 million square miles of pack ice. But that is, again, the third lowest on record that they've, they've ever seen. And so this is, you know, you, you see 9.33 million square kilometers or whatever. That's actually 1.4 million square kilometers less than the data they had in the averages from the 1980s to 2010. So over 30 years, so 1.3 million square kilometers less or 500,000 square miles less ice. So this is data year after year after year. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, these are big numbers, Yeah. but when you're talking about an entire environment and you know how that ice expands to the continents, you know, with Asia, Europe and North America, And then we look at the species that depend on that ice to reach that land, like polar bears that that come on land in the summers, you know, and then they go out on the ice during the winter. And now that ice is that much farther away. You know, it's, it's having drastic effects. It's having drastic effects. I think the other thing to consider, because of course, all of us at this podcast are very animal oriented. Um, But when you're talking to friends or family members or relatives or whatever that maybe aren't as animal crazy as we are, something to mention about global climate change and this reduction of Arctic ice as it has a huge impact on our weather system here in the States or wherever you may live where you're listening to this podcast due to the change in ocean currents and jet streams. So depending on where you live, you might already be seeing some impacts. Um, 
especially with the sea, sea ice melt, but also from a, from a temperature point of view. And so it really is a big deal. And, uh, it's something that of course, all top notch scientists and political figures that actually care about the environment. Uh, so yes, it's about the animals and lo- losing their way of life, but it's about us losing our way of life too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe if you explain it that way to someone who is, uh, either a climate change denier or an anti-science type person that maybe you can get them thinking, you know, differently or at least becoming more open-minded. Yeah. It takes me back to Rick Schwartz's interview on, you know, when we asked him, uh, have, do we have a moral obligation to save these animals? And and he put that in terms of our own survival. And and I think Stephanie kind of hinted at that too in her response. So yeah, for sure, you know, it's affecting human way of life and it will, it will, we, we, we will feel this. We will. We talked about in African penguins, the changing of the current, it already is. You know, the changing of that current with all the fish off Africa, South Africa, you know, it's already affecting the way of life for people there. So we're seeing it. I have some great graphics I'm going to put up on our show notes. This one, you know, which is interesting. I didn't really know this, but the, the peak CPAC ice in the Arctic is the months of March to April, which makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's the end of winter. That's when it's been the coldest. It builds up the longest. And then the lowest is late September, October, the end of summer going into fall. So data here I have right here, 1979, that's the, the year they started taking measurements. You had close to 16 and a half, 17 million square kilometers of pack ice. And then in 2012, that was down to about 14 and a half. So you're talking 2 million square kilometers of pack ice gone. You know, and another graphic I have showing air temperatures in the Arctic rising by two to three degrees Celsius. And it's a complete inverse relationship where pack ice is going straight down when temperatures are going up. So it's a, a total relationship where the warmer it gets, the less ice you're going to have, and you're going to affect polar bears. You're going to affect walrus. You're going to affect all these other species up there. Narwhal, beluga, you know, talking about polar bears. I think it was a David Attenborough special that's shown in Europe right now or, or in Britain where polar bears now are adapting to hunt beluga whales because they're they're learning to adapt and they're finding new prey. So I haven't seen it yet. I, I think once it here gets in the States, we'll be able to see it. But, you know, you're seeing impacts everywhere, everywhere. But Angie, you know, <laughs> to bring everybody down, we got to bring them right back up. The good news, the good news is we're aware of it. You know, we are Absolutely. aware of it. And you have someone like Greta, what's Greta Thornburg? Is that her last name? Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she was just a uh, recently yeah. Time Person of the Year in Time yeah. Magazine. Mm-hmm. 16-year-old girl changing the world. Absolutely. Changing the world. You know, she's got millions, if not billions of people's ears. She's going around the world speaking, saying, this is my future and I'm fighting for it. And mm-hmm. we all need to join her and, and applaud what she's doing and the bravery that, that she has. You know, she's been attacked Absolutely. left and right called every name on the, uh, it's just, it's horrific what people are saying about her that don't agree with climate change, whatever. So that's there a different is a movement pod for a different day. <laughs> that's what it's, I know. I just know. incredible. Oh, uh, but she's amazing. Uh, just a, a hero of mine. Now you, you look at somebody like that and so yeah, well, but it goes to show that you don't have to necessarily be a, 
a movie star or a political figure or a genius scientist uh, to make waves. Yes, yes. And she has got a lot of people's attention and I applaud the work she's doing. And there are a lot of countries out there and governments that are working hard to limit slow, slow down carbon emissions. It's just some of the bigger ones, <clears throat> US. Um, it depends on who's, who's in power. So, exactly. you know, for, for us, we have to stay aware, spread the knowledge, vote in your country for environmentally friendly policy and politicians because your future depends on it. And so do your children and your grandchildren. And vote with your dollar. And ideally, we'll save the planet and we'll help save the snowy owl. Yes. Yes. Because that's, I mean, that's what we're kind of laying the groundwork to talk about these birds today. They are on, they're listed as currently vulnerable, heading mm-hmm. on their way to endangered status. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they are facing a lot of challenges. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, I think we got to describe these things. You hear snowy. Yes. Oh, well, Chris, we might not beautiful. have to totally describe them because <laughs> unless you've been sleeping in a cave or not paying much attention, the snowy owl is very famous in the 21st century due to a movie franchise. If you watched it. <laughs> so, yes. And a book, yes. uh, the book series too. Yes. Books still uh, huge. Yeah. Which is still, you know, just a huge part of, of just growing up, I think, in the past mm-hmm. 20 years. 20 years. Is, yeah, okay. You're right. You're right. That's yeah. crazy. Uh, so, crazy. yes, everybody knows Hedwig. And if you don't, yeah. it's from the Harry Potter series. It was his owl. She was made famous in the book and then portrayed on screen. And so, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be talking about Hedwig today because there's some interesting things about the movie that I learned mm-hmm. and, uh, and also because there's some interesting things I learned about the movie and about Hedwig. And so for those of you that are not familiar with what a snowy owl looks like, pull a picture up on Google yes. image or our show notes. Uh, they are just stunning. Um, I mean, they're white, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are the largest bird species in the Arctic. So we'll, we'll get to their size in a second. So they're pretty impressive bird of prey. But as their name indicates, they're predominantly white. But they would do have some dusky brown spots or bars on them. And so females are larger than the males. And they actually tend to have more of these brown, gray, blackish, if you will, markings along their chest and their back than the males do. And the females also will have these brown markings or bars on their head too. So they have like a kind of a nice widow's peak, if you will. But both males and females have brilliantly white faces and stunning large yellow eyes. If you are a fan of eyes on animal, like in cats and things like that, or um, I mean, the eyes on this bird are just, mysterious right just enchanting magical Mm -hmm. uh, just and perhaps even a little haunting so and the males are mostly all white with just very subtle hints of these these brown spots or bars uh, more on their on their back area of their wings and other than that they're just pure white Mm -hmm. and handsome as all get out and they know it (laughs) <laughs> oh, they're so br- they're beautiful. Uh, and they even have feathers kind of over their beak 
to mm-hmm. cover their beak a little bit too, to just make them look really stoic and wise. And, um, yeah. So. Yeah. They're very, they're very dense with feathers, very dense. That helps them, you know, we'll get to a little bit in physiology, but helps them stay mm-hmm. warm. So they're all, they're very poofy. And then their feet have. I love that scientific term. Poofy. Yeah. Poofy. Yeah, yeah. poofy. <laughs> and then, you know, their heads are round. They don't have ear tufts like you see in some owls. And then their feet are covered with tons of feathers too, to keep them warm. Yeah. And then the best part, did you look up any, uh, chicks, any photos of chicks? No, but they're, they're dark, right? Gray. Oh, yeah. hold on. Let me send you one right yeah. now, real quick. Okay. Pause, pause the episode. Do you see it? Do you see what a snowy owl <laughs> chick looks like? This <laughs> is only looking. Mom and dad are like the most beautiful birds on earth. And then you have this thing. <laughs> well, this is, this is what we're, I think, I think this should be our next Instagram poll because yeah. I actually think they're really adorable. And this, <laughs> they're ugly. They're just this, it's basically just like a big gray dust ball, poof, yeah. white thing. Oh, uh, oh very f- circular, not even like mm-hmm. oval shaped, like an owl, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. big, puffy yeah. and with big eyes and big feet, of course. Yeah. So. I'm not doing a great job describing it at all. So we'll have to put some pictures on our show notes and we'll do mm-hmm. an Instagram poll later to see if your team, Angie, that thinks snowy owls, chicks <laughs> are incredibly adorable in a weird way, but in a fun way mm-hmm. or your team, mm-hmm. Chris, that seems to not think that they're cute. <laughs> they're just homely. They're homely looking. It's like a, you know, swans, right? Swans are. Oh my gosh. I saw this picture. Uh, one of the researchers I'm going to talk about later on the podcast and his, uh, conservation group. And in doing my research, I came across this article all about snowy owls and a researcher by the name of Denver Holt, who is also the founder of the nonprofit group called Owl Research Institute, which I'm going to talk about at the end of the podcast because they're awesome. But he's, goes um, to the tundra and studies these birds and is trying to figure out why their populations aren't doing well. And there's pictures of him with just these owlets, these juvenile, fluffy, I think cute, Chris says not so much, uh, <laughs> just sitting like right next to him. And one's like even on his leg because they're curious mm-hmm. type creatures. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that he had the best job in the whole universe. I And I don't know, just seeing them out in the Arctic, just next to a researcher yeah. and happy and fluffy and awkward and amazing. So, yeah, yeah. They're, they're beautiful. But we'll birds. put some pictures they're on the pre- show notes and yeah, uh, sure, I'd like, sure. we'll get some feedback. But I think what's really important to the highlight is their size. Yeah, they're I big. Mean, they're big. They're big owls. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, length, just body length is up to 28 inches, which is mm-hmm. over two feet, uh, or up Tall. to 70 centimeters. Yeah, their weight, it, you know, it, it's, I have 100 ounces or almost 3,000 grams. And then, but the wingspan, right? Is nuts. Yeah. Yeah, 170 yeah. centimeters, or that's about five and a half feet. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a big owl. It's a big owl. When I was lucky enough in my time at the zoo to get to work with birds of prey, I worked with screech owls and barn owls. My favorite being Miss Alba Jean, a barn owl that I got to work with and hold and do some educational stuff with, uh, for our outreach programs. But that's a much smaller owl compared to, I couldn't imagine holding a snowy up 
I mean, that's some right. weight on your arm. That's a big, that's a big owl. That's a big owl. It's a big owl. And yeah, you know, and, and we'll get a little bit to their history, but you know, evolved to, to survive in that harsh environment. And speaking of the Arctic, you, you know, North America, Northern parts of the United States up through Canada, obviously into Greenland and the Arctic and then Northern Europe. So Finland, Sweden, you know, Norway through, you know, the, that region of the world through Russia out through Siberia. So pretty much what circumpolar, like they're around the, the North Pole. Yeah, definitely a circumpolar distribution, but occasionally they can make it far south. Um, they've been recorded in Hawaii. And they can fly back and Hawaii? forth across cotton. Yes. Hawaii? They can. You saw Hawaii? Mm-hmm. You saw Hawaii? Wow. Better. Wow. They can fly back and forth across continents. One How female was. Wow. That's crazy. Why not? Sorry. Keep it. Wait for this. <laughs> That's crazy. One female uh, owl was tracked in 2012 that traveled over 7,000 miles round trip um, from Boston to, I'm going to slaughter this name, but Nanavut. Oh. So I'm gonna say Massachusetts. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think your husband yeah. would appreciate that if you uh, slaughter his. State no, I can name. I can say Boston, but uh, to the two, yeah, to to Nonavut, Nonavut. Um, okay, okay. And, so let's then, back mm-hmm. up the bus. Yeah, this is something you used okay. to say a long time ago. This is a bird that migrates because owls don't migrate; they're not supposed to. But this one does. Correct. Right? It has different Correct. ranges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, and there's actually a phenomenon known as an interruption. And it's basically a large number of snowy owls sometimes emerge from their nests in a given season and will travel down to the U.S. suburbs, like cities like Boston and Seattle. Mm-hmm. They've mm-hmm. been recorded in Texas and in Florida in 2013 and 14. Mm-hmm. So it was the first snowy owl reporting in decades here. Um, I know they've been seen in Michigan, uh, recently, the past, uh, in the past year or two near my hometown of South Haven. Uh, so depending on, and we'll talk a lot about a nutrition, their, their mm-hmm. prey cycles of right. what they eat as far as if it's a season where there's not a lot of prey around, they move. They will go further south and look for a more abundant prey. But the other really cool thing too, as far as their range is they've been recorded landing on boats that are way, way out in the ocean. Um, it's about like 300, 400 miles from the near, nearest land. In fact, a research study in 2008 suggested that maybe snowy owls should be considered a type of marine species, right? Mm-hmm. We always think of them as land because they live in land, they nest on land, and we'll talk more about that when we get to their behavior. But six adult females were followed in, in a satellite study in 2008, and they spent most of the winter far, far out on the Arctic sea ice. Mm-hmm. And doing, and they think that they were hunting seabirds out way, yeah. way out on the Arctic ice. So researchers are thinking they might also inhabit this different ecological niche in the tundra as far as being more of a marine-based animal than a land uh, animal. And so 
there's just still, I think, a lot that we don't know about them and some of these historic and some of these crazy distances that they can fly and places that they've been spotted looking for food just goes to show with how flexible and able they are to adapt. Um, but this doesn't mean that they aren't still having, obviously, big problems with their populations. Well, I think, I think this it's is a sign it, that they are needing to travel further to look for food. Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it kind of how we laid this out in the beginning, talking about the trouble the Arctic's in. I mean, it, 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 it is. And so it's affecting these birds, you know, they are in search of food. Their, their food isn't obviously abundant where they're at. So they have to travel to different areas. Yeah. I mean, I would want to see one in Florida, but I'd also be sad if I saw one, right? Like they're like, they they don't belong there. It's not, no, they belong in the Arctic. They've evolved. I know for a snowy out in Texas. And then, you know, I, I mean, I believed you, I know you do your research, but in 2012 to show up in Hawaii, because in the article, you know, talks about them showing up in Hawaii. So that definitely supports the Marine thing you're talking about, but also that it, their migration or where they have to go to find food is being heavily impacted by the earth, the change in the earth. I mean, it just is. These are not birds that belong in Texas. I'm sorry. They don't belong there. No, it's, way too far south for them. It's way too hot. And that should be, again, birds are, you know, we always say canary in the coal mine. Birds are a great indicator to what's going on in the biome. And I know a few weeks ago, I don't remember what podcast it was, but we were talking about the mass die off of birds in North America, that big study that came out, you know, it's, it's, it, uh, anyways. So why care? I'll tell you, these things are critical to the biome in the, in the Arctic tundra, you know, they, they keep rodents in control. I have data right here where one snowy owl can eat up to 1600 rodents in a year. One. Yes. Incredible. One. So, you know, they, they are very critical to, you know, keeping everything in in balance. I mean, nature is in balance and they play Mm -hmm. their role. They play their role. So very critical, critical predator. Yep. Mm -hmm. And some other species of bird, including the greater and lesser snow geese, Another snow one we'll have to cover. Uh, mm-hmm. But those species that will often nest near snowy owl nests, and they actually seem to help benefit from the protection that the snowy owls do for their own offspring and mm-hmm. their nests. So they kind of have this mutualistic symbiosis type relationship where they benefit from it. So if there's less snowy owls and it's going to be a trickle down effect, less Great. Right. That's going to be hard. A mouthful. Less, greater, yeah. and lesser snow geese. <laughs> There's yeah, my yeah. tongue twister of the day. So, yeah. And I think that from a, from a human perspective, uh, from an economical or just cultural perspective, owls in general, they've just been popular since ancient times. They show up in the Egypt, Egyptian hieroglyphics in 30,000 year old cave paintings in France. Mm-hmm. So they, they just have a long history with them. And, and of course, most recently, um, the Harry Potter books and, uh, by JK Rowling and the subsequent films feature a female snowy owl named Hedwig. So, uh, that's really boosted their popularity mm-hmm. for people that were unaware about snowy owls and how beautiful they are. But in the series, Hedwig, she was an 11th birthday gift to Harry from Hagrid. 
And throughout the series, Hedwig is a close companion to Harry and goes on, obviously, a lot of the adventures with him. And the and owls in general play a big role in um, the, the wizardly world of Harry Potter as they help transport messages back and forth um, as needed. And so, yeah, people fell in love with them. But um, interestingly enough, there always can be some negatives with that, is that the popularity of snowy owls spiked. Mm-hmm. And as early as 2001, the BBC reported that there was actually a higher demand for birds as a pet, these birds as a pet. Mm, geez. And uh, even potentially triggered like a really high demand of, for owls in India known as the owl crisis. So in, in the United States, keeping birds of prey without special proper licensing and uh, permits and things like that is strictly prohibited. But other countries such as the UK and India have um, a little bit less strict rules. And so they can often be purchased. And then people mm. realize that they are a tough pet to keep. Um, yeah. Yeah. You got to, you got to have rodents in your freezer. Yeah. That's not necessarily fun unless you're a total bird nerd or, yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, they don't make good pets. They should stay in the wild or of course in an accredited zoological uh, facil- educational right. facility um, because yeah, they're, you know, they're really special creatures and they, they do, um, they do require a lot, a lot of care. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, popular culture and how, you know, like uh, the Harry Potter movie can all of a sudden spike a demand and, and I want an owl as a pet, you know, get a canary or something like, you know, <laughs> that would be a yeah. little bit more appropriate. And even well, those it, are tough to keep. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. So I need to get some of, um, some more bird experts on here too, to, mm-hmm. that can talk about bird keeping mm-hmm. people that mm-hmm. do have interest in it as well, because I've, never had a bird as a pet, but I do have a few friends that have had them and can help talk about pros and cons, but also, uh, you know, I was able to care for them in a zoolog- accredited zoological facility and where I had all the resources and we had vets on hand and all the proper, we had nutritionists helping with their diets. And so it was pretty easy to care for them and they were obviously happy owls. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I found really fascinating, I did not know this until uh, researching snowy owls, but Hedwig in the Harry Potter series is a female. Mm-hmm. And so technically speaking, in the movie, she must be dressed up in drag. <laughs> because in the movie, a male snowy owl played the parts. Okay. So the males, as we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, are more mm-hmm. brilliantly white. Mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. have less of the markings and spots on them. And so Hedwig in the movies was a male. Okay. 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 Which, but they were, but they were trying to say that, you know, of course in the movie, she's a female. Right. So only your true owl loving bird nerd no. would, would probably catch that. Yeah. Uh, that kind of uh, discrepancy there. Right. I'm looking at um, it right now. You're the other absolutely funny... right. You're absolutely right. He, mm-hmm. he's just got a the other. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah the, there's another scene where Hedwig is able to carry uh, one of Harry Potter's brooms called the Nimbus 2000 flying broom. Mm-hmm. And so I found this amazing interview with Laura Erickson and she's a science editor and bird expert for the Cornell lab of ornithology, mm-hmm. which is anybody who knows anything Amazing. about birds like they're, yeah. 
the bird go yes. to. They write the book on it. But anyways, uh, she was saying that she thinks that a snowy owl could carry the weight of a broomstick okay. um, just by their sheer size and strength and their talons. But of course, in the movie, when that scene yeah. was shot, it was done with a C. It was done with a C. A CGI. Yeah, 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 yeah. CGI, yeah. Uh, computer animated snowy owl. Um, but definitely, definitely, uh, an owl would have no problem. Any owl, for the most part, would have no problem carrying letters back and forth. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. got to be less than, yeah. much less than what a mouse or a typical prey would yeah, weigh. Yeah. So, yeah, just kind of some fun Harry Potter facts because who doesn't love Harry Potter and Hedwig, I know, is just They're beautiful. It's just a favorite for for everyone and yeah, and got people really excited about owls, which is good. Yeah. It's just yeah, they don't make good pets. No, no, <laughs> so. no, no. It just makes you appreciate them though, like in nature when you hear them or see them. You know, we're going to get into some of the behaviors too, you know, cuz it's not easy to see them during the day at most owls. Uh, quickly on evolution, I mean, there, there's actually not a lot on owl evolution, which I think is interesting. Um, going back to our bird episodes, I mean, the first bird is 130 million years old. Uh, you know, obviously birds came out from dinosaurs. They're, they're linking that today with science. You know, birds really took off in, you know, 66 million years ago when dinosaurs went extinct. I mean, they were there. But once dinosaurs went extinct, that's when, you know, just birds exploded in population and we see the species differentiation. Owls, they trace owls back to the true owl, which is uh, the family of Stringidae. So that's where most owls today came from. And it's just, you know, as each species found its niche, again, this is millions of years in evolution. This isn't a hundred years or a thousand years. We're talking tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, you know, most owls evolved to, you know, survive. They had better eyesight, you know, uh, very good hearing. Most of them are nighttime. You know, that's when you see most of them, which is not true for the snowy owl, which we'll get to. So, you know, it's interesting how the snowy owl difference differentiates from other owls. But the one thing I did find interesting in owl evolution is they're, ancient ancestor, some scientists believe this, others are, are debating it or not, but they believe it was kind of like an ostrich, looked like an ostrich, and then developed mm, the, yeah. the you know, flight, and then they were able to fly, and then one went off to ostrich, and then one, you know, became the owls. So, you know, they have, diff- they have like very similar talons to an ostrich. So very, very, very interesting, I thought. Overall with owls, you know, we, we did a little bit of this with the burrowing owl, over 200 species of owls throughout the world on every continent except Antarctica. And so that's the only place that, that you don't find them. The snowy owl is scientific name is Bubo scandiacus, scandiacus. Yeah, scandiacus. There you go. Bubo scandiacus. So the genus Bubo is also where you have the American horned owls. In the old world or back there in Europe and the UK and everything like that, the eagle owls. So very, very interesting that they put the snow owls in here because they've done some mitochondrial DNA. Some still believe that they're, they're part of a different genus, but genetics is starting to, to paint a, a clear picture in owls. Yeah. There's a different scientific name and I had to go yeah. do a little. A little once over and double check that I was in the right place. But yeah, a lot of it's based on. 
mitochondrial DNA and learn just recently mm-hmm. learning that they're more closely related to horn owls than the other, um, Nic- the other Nictia, Nictia genus. Yeah. 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 Nictia. That's what I would probably, yeah. or nice CT. I don't know. Yeah. Nictia. Yes. yeah. That one. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, but yes, there's over, I mean, yeah. we, we could do a whole podcast on owls cause there's over 200 species. Yeah, right now, they're amazing. So. There's some amazing species. Now I did find the largest owl in the world today, not in history. There wasn't one that's the size of like an elephant or something, which would be cool. But today the, the largest or, and the heaviest is the Blackestons fish owl. And again, part of the family Bubo or genus Bubo, not family genus. And it's actually one of the rarest and it's endangered and it's in the, the Russian far East. So the maximum wingspan of the, the Blackestons fish owl is almost up to six foot three inches or a hundred nine, almost 200 centimeters. The, the wingspan. So, wow. you know, the, the yeah. snowy owl is up there, but this one's a little bit larger. Sure. Definitely. They mm-hmm. have had a specimen that its wingspan was six foot seven or over 200 centimeters. Six foot seven. Wow. Huge, Ooh. huge owl, but they're endangered. Yeah. They're in a small pocket in the far East in Russia. So hopefully, uh, you know, they, they survive. Now, the average lifespan of a snowy owl is about 10 years. So not super long, but not, you know, super short. Yeah. Um, under human care, they've been known to live up to 28 years. Shows you the harshness so, of the Arctic, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's make, yeah. Double their It's their not shocking. Yeah. It's, yeah. Gotta be a, a hard place to live for sure. Yeah. So, you know, we talked about that beak. You know, obviously for mm-hmm. gripping prey, tearing flesh and eating the bristles or those like feathers, they think help them sense nearby objects. So it kind of, oh, yeah, it's almost like whiskers, okay. you know, that's what I kind of thought of it. You know, obviously the, the feet are covered with feathers, which h- helps insulate from the cold Arctic climate, you know, especially you know, sitting, standing mm-hmm. there and just tons and tons of feathers that makes them one of the heaviest owl species in North America. You know, just tons of feathers. I, I, I couldn't find data on. Yeah. They're very dense, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So, you know, obviously they're, they have this, this really dense coat of feathers. And so they're, they're kind of round bodied a little bit. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're cute. Yeah. So, you know, that they have that thick plumage. And then what I found interesting, Angie's, you know, surviving there in the Arctic is, you know, they, they try to expend as little energy as possible. You know, because we always talk about mm-hmm. that. We talked about that with you know, African penguins having to swim that much further. Energy expenditure, you know, to stay warm, to fly for these ones or for the penguins we said swimming, to go out and hunt and and recapture that energy, you know, f- for their body. So usually when they fly, they don't go very high. They stay low to the ground. And usually they just kind of stand around and wait for prey before they take off. So they're not constantly, yes. mm-hmm. yeah, constantly scanning and hunting. Moving around. Yeah. So what, you know, what they're looking for really is lemmings. That's their preferred prey. You know, that's what really what they mm-hmm. love to eat. It's prolific up there in the Arctic. Maybe not so much anymore with everything that's going on up there. But, you know, they also like voles and mice. And that's basically what they, they love to eat. Now, Angie did indicate earlier that they do like to eat other species, you know, birds, so duck, geese, uh, partridge, or is that the grouse like Songbirds, coots, grouse, yeah. pheasants, shorebirds. Yeah. Rabbits, yeah. hares. 
So, you know, whatever they can get and, you know, and then I think Angel will get a little bit more into their behavior, how they like to perch and look out and then use their really keen hearing and eyesight to locate prey. And then they take off. And I guess they're very yeah. silent when they fly. I, I read somewhere they're like very quiet. So yeah, owls in general are known for their silent flight. They actually have special feathers that break the turbulence of the wind into smaller currents. Crazy which reduces the sound. Mm -hmm. And then they have soft velvety down plumage underneath that further muffles the noise. So I'm no sound engineer, but that seems incredibly brilliant form of evolution and adaptations mm -hmm. in order to be able to basically do an ambush attack mm -hmm. on your prey, mm -hmm. right? Like they don't hear you coming. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's everybody's mm -hmm. worst fear, right? Yep, yep. Uh, and, and as Chris mentioned, one of their, another one of their superpowers is their hearing. They can hear prey, which might be under leaves or dirt or snow, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, the misnomer is, is that owls can turn their heads all the way around in 360 degrees. So they can't, but they can turn it 270 yeah, degrees. Yeah. So that's, that's pretty, pretty far, radical, yeah, right? Pretty far, pretty far. Um, and without going into too many of the details, in order, to, if you think about it, in order to turn a, your head 270 mm -hmm. degrees, right? Three quarters of a turn. Uh, there's a lot of adaptations that, in their bones and their blood vessels and the uh, vascular network, uh, supporting those vessels. Because if you cut blood off to your brain, yeah, that's yeah. a bad thing, right? No oxygen in the brain, no glucose to the brain means, well, you're brain dead. So, and this doesn't happen to an owl when they're turning their head um, to listen and focus in on more where a prey, their prey item might be. So, and of course they have good eyesight as well too, which, which helps them identify their prey. Uh, a recent study by the Owl Research Institute showed that out of 43,000 prey animals collected at snowy owl breeding sites. 90% of them were lemmings. Hmm. Yep. So. Yep. yep. That's what they love. Yeah. Which goes to show that they're definitely more of a specialist when it comes to hunting and they prefer the lemmings, um, but they will take other prey items when in, uh, you know, in leaner times or when opportunity presents itself. And for those of you that have worked with birds of prey or birds that eat meat, a big part of understanding owl digestive physiology is they swallow their prey whole and they have these really, they have this really strong stomach juice mm -hmm. that will help digest, of course, the, the lemming or the mouse or whatever it is. It's to digest its flesh, but the bones of the animal, the teeth, the fur, and often the feathers are not digestible. And so the owls will basically create a compact oval sized pellet that they regurgitate anywhere from 18 to 24 hours after eating. Mm -hmm. And this regurgitation often takes place when they're, uh, when they're on a perch and we call it in the zoo industry, we call it a cast pellet. And it may seem weird, but just from a, from a zookeeping point of view, we always are inspecting an animal's feces to see if they're healthy. Their feces tells us a lot about the health of the animal. Uh, so does a cast pellet. They can tell us uh, a lot about the owl and what they're eating and if they are eating and how much they're eating. 
And biologists in the wild will frequently examine these cast pellets to determine the quantity and types of prey items that the birds have been eating. So it's really important part of the bird's physiology. And you can learn a lot about an owl from its cast pellet. I know it's, uh, that's, uh, I remember, I, I think you go back to biology in college, breaking that apart, you know, getting those pellets and looking at what they ate and trying to figure oh, out yeah. what they ate. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. Mm-hmm. So cool. So cool. So what I found really interesting, you know, leading into behavior, you know, they're, they're hunting is, you know, most owls, like we said in the beginning, were nocturnal, whereas these ones are diurnal and really more crisp, ah, you always say this crepuscular, right? More active dusk mm-hmm. and dawn. So. Yeah, it's yeah. completely backwards from what we know about owls. So the snowy owl stands out, A, for their beauty, B, for their size. And then I think from a behavioral point of view, they really stand out for the fact that they are diurnal or, as Chris mentioned, active during dusk and dawn mm-hmm. and even during the day, mm-hmm. especially in the summertime, which in the Arctic, uh, you do have to kind of enjoy the summertime because there's you only get like what? 84 days with some sunlight or a very, a very small amount of time where there's a uh, good sunlight. So you want to take good advantage of it. But in general, s- snowy owls are migratory, but their migration is very unpredictable. As we talked about, as we talked about earlier in their pod, them being found in random places like Hawaii or on the decks of ships, 400 miles uh, off the nearest coast of anywhere. And so it's it's researchers think it's related more to prey abundance than to actual season or weather mm-hmm. as far as their migration patterns but in general they're um they're nomadic and they'll breed when and where prey is abundant and statistics have shown that about every 4 years there's kind of this surge of snowy owls heading into the northern United States during the winter. And they think that that's once again is probably because the, the prey is scarce. So I just think it's crazy. I think it's crazy. Like I still, Angie, the one thing that you blew me away about today is that they found them in Hawaii. Like they flew all the way to Hawaii. I mean, who doesn't want to go to Hawaii? I, I mean, I want to go to Hawaii. <laughs> Well, that and uh, Florida. I'm like, what in the, are uh, what? Yeah. What? And I, like I said, as much as I'd like to, I, I still need to see the burrowing, burrowing owl, right. which is supposed to be in Florida. But yeah, so no, it's, um, it's definitely interesting, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. snowy owls in general are going to be solitary and somewhat territorial. So males will establish their territory on their breeding grounds and defend them, uh, by using vocalizations and threat postures. And this territory, once again, will depend on the prey, the prey availability that season. And when the prey is abundant, they're going to have a smaller territory. And when the prey is less abundant, they're going to obviously have a larger territory in search of delicious food. And of course, the owl is notorious for its hoo-hoo yeah, sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, however, the snowy owl, once again, strikes out as its own. Yeah. But once again, the snowy owl kind of is an outlier for an owl as far as the common vocalizations because its alarm call is more like a barking sound and there's more of a crack crack sound and a female can once in a while make more of a pee pee or prack prack. So it's 
just not the typical who, who that you think mm-hmm, of. Mm-hmm. Um, he, And since it is a little bit different, here's a snowy owl barking sound. I did hear a little bit of a who, who, but it sounded like yeah, smoked like a carton of cigarettes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I was just saying, it's not a very... It's not a very inviting hoo hoo, right? No, yeah, no. It's more like, more like yeah, an angry or, uh, uh, but yeah, so, but you know, they, uh, they're still, they're beautiful. So yeah, we'll give them very, that, right? Um, very, 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 but very. once again, they, they utilize their sight, sound and touch to communicate, uh, and perceive the environment that they live in. And the males will hoot or make these vocalizations typically more frequent than the females. And, there are, like I said, there's a variety of calls that we'll, we'll mm-hmm. put some links to on our show notes for those of you that want to familiarize yourself with more snowy owl calls. And I definitely believe, Chris, that the folklore about owls being wise mm-hmm. is true. Mm-hmm. I think they're a very intelligent bird. Uh, as far as specific research into how intelligent snowy owls are, uh, I couldn't really find too much research on that. There's definitely more work that needs to be done for all you budding ornithologists and scientists yeah. out there. Uh, but in general, people that have worked with them as a zookeeper or caretaker talk about how easy they are to train, how intelligent they are and how much personality they have too. Mm-hmm. I think that that's often um, perhaps underrated in some, in some bird species, but the owls definitely have personalities and they will bond to humans somewhat. I'm not as intensely as other uh, species of birds, but there was one report I found of snowy owls. They've been known to raid or steal trap lines food from trap lines that are set out yeah. by trappers in the Arctic. Okay. And of course the trappers get mad and like move them mm. regularly. And the owls over time have learned basically they follow them and <laughs> they just cost Damn the trappers owl. a lot of money. Yeah. And they can't, they can't shake them. So mm. pretty funny stuff there. It's like, who's who, who is smart. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, but yeah, uh, but yes, I would love to see a study out there of actually you know, just how intelligent they are. But uh, I think uh, I, th- I think they would shock all of us if there was a, a little bit more way to quantify the data. I think just owls, and they're just so mystical too. They just they just are so mystical and so beautiful, and you know, it's it, they're amazing birds. They're amazing birds. They're amazing birds. And one of the best part about a lot of birds is their courtship displays. Oh, so okay. The snowy owl does not disappoint. Yeah. And I'll get there in one second. Uh, but first in general, snowy owls are monogamous. Though polygamy has been reported when prey was excessively abundant. Mm-hmm. So there's lots of preys around in those male <laughs> snowy owls. <laughs> A little drunk on lemmings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, okay. they, uh, they step out on their lady friends. So, oh, man. Geez, man. Uh, maybe we can learn something from them, right? Um, but, but interestingly enough, they're only monogamous typically for a breeding season. So they're mm-hmm. not, they're not necessarily lifelong monogamous partners that we see like in a species such as eagles. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Albatross. Will- we have to do albatross. Right. We're going to do albatross soon, but yeah. 
Like, and they fly in different directions, thousands of miles and still come back. Like insane, insane. That's love, man. That's true. I know. I know. So, and with snowy owls, the breeding pairs will form on the wintering grounds in either late April, early May. And an elaborate courtship displays are really important for uh, pair forming and for the bonding. And the male snowy owl will perform both an aerial display. Thank you very much. Love Mm -hmm. that. And then he'll follow it up with a ground display. And so the aerial display will consist of exaggerated flight where he's undulating back and forth while carrying a lemming in his bill or his claw. And then when he's on the ground, he'll perform a ground display. And so with his back towards a female, the male will stand erect and then lean forward with his head lowered and his tail partly fanned out, almost nearly laying on the ground. (laughs) And sometimes he's observed passing the limbing from the male to the female while in flight. The birds are amazing, Angie. They're... Isn't that nuts? <laughs> They're like, you know, all these other mammals are like beating each other up. And she's like, oh, and the girls are all like, oh. you know, they're like, oh, he's the strongest. Okay, I'll mate with him. Birds are like, man, you better, you better come to the table and show me something or I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I know. I just think about like, it'd be one thing for my husband to like do a little dance for me. But another thing, if he was like doing a dance, holding a bar of chocolate, and then like put that bar of chocolate in my mouth, you know what I mean? Like that. I was that gonna say really... I was gonna say lemming, but <laughs> chocolate works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would. Well, if he if he did a lemming, I'd be that. Mm, I tell he needs to try harder. Get out of here. Yeah. Bar of chocolate, but good. just okay. so fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, but yes, and so after that beautiful display, um, and. Male and female snowy owls fall in love. They will build a nest. However, once again, snowy owls are different than most owls. Mm -hmm. And in fact, they don't build nests in trees. They actually construct their nest on the ground Mm -hmm. by Mm -hmm. scraping out a shallow bowl in the turf or the bare ground. And the nest isn't really lined with many insulating materials. So the nest is just there and it's exposed and both male and female defend it. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, it's typically the female who builds a nest because, well, of course, it's females know how to build a better nest. So that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the female will begin to lay eggs in the nest once it's constructed at two-day intervals. And, and the female will incubate or sit on the eggs for about... 32 to 34 days. But what's really cool, Chris, is and she'll lay anywhere from three to 11 white eggs, but mm-hmm. uh, one study reported up to 16 when the prey, lot, of course, yeah. is really abundant. Yeah. She makes more eggs. eggs. That makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. And, but when these eggs hatch after, like I said, about 31 days, it's really interesting. They don't all hatch at once. They actually hatch like every other day. Mm-hmm. So the chicks that are in the clutch within a nest have kind of a wide range in age, which I didn't have time to go into that 
reproductive wormhole. Mm -hmm. Um, but maybe someday somebody will hire me someday to study that because it's super fascinating to me how how, they hatch it to how that timing must work. Well, Mm -hmm. and and then Mm -hmm. also think, I mean, I don't know. I'm just taking a stab at it real quick. I don't know why. Um, because I love science and I'm a geek. Because <laughs> they're way braver. You're, you're more brave than me. Think about it though. Okay. She, she's going to lay them, you know, in, in a circular somewhat pattern. So I would assume mm-hmm. the eggs in the middle are warmer than the eggs on the outer outer edge. So I bet you those ones hatch first. I don't know. Someone could prove me wrong. I may be right. I may be right though. And so the ones in the middle might hatch at a quicker rate because they're warmer, you know, and then the ones on the outer edge, you know, take a little bit longer to, to mature. That, that's Maybe. that's my guess, you know, because I, I remember going back, geez, I think this was March of the Penguins when like it, and not talking about egg hatching, but when the penguins in that circle that they know, like on the outer edge, they start to freeze to death. But the the penguins know that. So they let them come into the middle to warm up and then they just all switch, sure. you know. So I'm just mm-hmm. thinking that I bet just there's something to that. You know, I bet you there's something yeah, to that. So. It's just, yeah, yeah, it's like a hormonal control of maybe yeah. I don't I don't know. It's, it's I really, I, th- I bet you it's a temperature thing. I don't know temperature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think so because you know yeah. eggs need to be incubated, and so the ones they on the do. outer edge are looting to be colder than the ones in the middle. So you want to be yeah. that that first egg out, or maybe it's the first egg that she created inside her that might be a little bit. Yeah, but the eggs, yeah. according to the, the what I was reading, the eggs the eggs hatch approximately every other day. So yeah. there's a lot of them in the center. So how does, like, wouldn't the center ones all hatch? Don't use then... logic on me. Don't use logic on me. Just <laughs> accept my hypothesis. No. Okay. Maybe go back. Maybe it's just how the eggs formed inside her. Well, that, I, that I'm wondering if it's more like of an internal thing because remember she be. does lay yeah. her eggs. All right. It takes her a couple of days to lay her eggs. So if you're an earlier egg, maybe you mm. hatch earlier, but still that, I mean, it's so is some of the male sperm delayed and I mean, just, it's, I, I just know. love science. And I just I go birds. back to sea turtles, and you know, we go back to turtles and temperature and how it affects temperature, you know, sex ratios. Yeah. <laughs> There's something. It's crazy. Anyways, that's a hypothesis but that I think just got disproven on What we can both get behind. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's all good. That's what this is for. Uh, <laughs> it's the Angie and Chris show, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but what we can both get behind is that both parents feed and protect the chicks. Yes. So these chicks are born and they're super adorable. They have snowy white down. They don't really get goofy looking and, uh, until they're a little bit older. And both parents seriously defend the nest by dive bombing any potential predators that approach the nest, including human researchers. So, mm-hmm. uh, be careful if you're a human researcher out there studying the nesting sites because they will get, you will get dive bombed. It's just part of it's, uh, I guess would be like a job hazard. Right. Um, but of course these amazing researchers out there, uh, love the snowy owls and just deal with it, I suppose. But yeah, so both male and females have a big role in helping brood the chicks while they're growing and the male will bring the food to the nest where the female will then dissect it into smaller pieces and feed the chick. So lots of teamwork. Mm-hmm. And in times of plenty, males will bring home these lemmings and the females will actually stack them around the nest in, um, in caches up to 10 or 15 lemmings deep. <laughs> so mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I just, mm-hmm. that visual to me is just amazing, yep, right? Yep, so yep. they don't have much in their ground nest, but they got a stack of lemmings, you know. <laughs> it's if, like, if, here, uh, junior, be quiet. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, here you go. Uh, it's like me with it's like me with the the, the you know the fit goldfish crackers. Or oh something yeah, 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 yeah. Like here you go. Okay, yes. Okay, here you go. Um, but the uh, the chicks will start to leave the nest before they can fly, and this is usually anywhere from two to three to four weeks um, after hatching. And the parents, both parents, will continue to feed them and protect them for about five to seven weeks until they're able to hunt for themselves. So, and then they'll leave the nest as they get older and more uh, independent. And if prey abundance is low, even if they're of breeding age, they'll forego a whole breeding season. So when we start talking about how we get these snowy owl numbers to rebound, they only usually produce one clutch per season. Mm -hmm. And the amount of eggs in the clutch are pretty much dependent on the amount of prey. Prey, And if they breed that season depends on how much prey Prey abundance there is. is. It's all very interconnected and dynamic system that historically for, you know, hundreds of thousands of years has been fine, but with climatic changes and human disturbances, what are we doing to these poor guys? I I mean, their numbers are just have decreased so much. Um, the IUCN, as Chris mentioned, mm-hmm. reports that they're they're vulnerable and their population is decreasing. They estimate about twenty eight thousand individuals, but they think that that might be an overestimation because yeah. back in two thousand thirteen they listed about two hundred. So two thousand thirteen right. is like what seven years ago? Yeah, yeah. And they were saying, oh, probably two hundred thousand then. And now they're, and then the most recent report came out in 2017. They're like, okay, we way overestimated. No way. There's no way that many. Mm-mm. And then they upgraded them to, um, to vulnerable. And mm-hmm. now they're talking about, uh, potentially, you know, if as, low population... as, 7, as low as 7,000, as low as 7,000. And so they might update their status to endangered, which is yeah. just crazy. Yeah. And I mean, here's a species who is remarkably able to adapt and live in harsh climates and be super successful at it for tens of thousands of years. And now all of a sudden their numbers are just crashing. And as Chris mentioned, I really do think they are canary in the coal mine as far as what's happening to other populations. This isn't, this isn't New York city species, you know, where human population is huge or California, you know, Southern California where we have, you know, our local wildlife are extinct or going extinct. This is a species that spans the entire Arctic and they think, yeah, like the whole top of the globe. Just think about that. And they think there's less than there might be less than 7,000 breeding pair across that whole wide range. Think about that for a moment. This isn't where, I mean, yeah, there's humans up there exploiting oil and gas, you know, research, things like that, or, you know, building wells, pipelines, all that crap crud but there isn't mass humanity up in the north pole you know there's a there's a there's a jolly old man with his wife and a bunch of elves and that's about it i mean that's all you have up there and so when we talk climate change and we talk about the arctic ice pack disappearing greenland losing mass ice all of these things you're seeing this affect the species this species specifically, like we talked about Madagascar last week. We talked about the penguins. 
like I know I hear my friend Darina saying it's always bad news. I'm sorry. It, knowledge is power. And that is why, you know, we, we need to empower you to go out and become eco warriors and conservation heroes. Before we get to the organization, Angie, I just this week, you know, conservation tip ways to re- reduce your carbon footprint. We, we, me and Angie say this, Oh, eat meat free meals. Eat organic and local whenever possible. Don't waste your food. Grow your own. Those are four ways, four ways you can reduce your carbon footprint. And we all need to do it. And I'm skipping meat in a lot of my meals, buying local, things like that. Um, you know, I wanted to spend just a little bit of time. And I, I know we're running out of time. This podcast is getting a little bit long. But just, you know, animal protein. And, and again, Angie and I came from our background is livestock and working with cows and working with sheep and pigs and things like that. So I understand the industry very well. I, my family and you know, my cousins, my uncles been involved with that. I have many friends that are farmers. I understand what they do and I don't want to attack their livelihood, but we all need to eat less animal protein. It's, we just have to because it is making huge impacts on carbon emissions. And just to give you some something you can use, some data that people can use and, and understand because we eat too much protein, like especially in the Western countries, you know, maybe not everywhere, but we eat a little bit too much animal protein because we, you know, we can afford it and it's, it's a luxury item really per day. The average man needs about 56 grams of protein. The average woman about 46 grams. Okay. And I could put the calculator on the website. If you know, maybe I'll do that anyways, you can calculate I what you need. way more than that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and for me, I'm not average man. I'm six, five, two thirty. you know, I'm a big guy, but you know, 56 grams is nothing. Let me, let me tell you how many grams are in three ounces of chicken cooked nearly 20 grams of three ounces. Right. Three ounces. I used to go get like a 16 ounce steak for dinner. Like three ounces of meat of animal proteins, almost 20 grams. That's almost, that's, you know, a third of what I need each day, three ounces. So nine ounces of chicken, I'm done for the day. You know, six yeah. ounces of, of Greek yogurt, 17 grams of protein, a quarter or half a cup of cottage cheese, 14 grams. I don't like cottage cheese, but there it is. One <laughs> cup of milk, eight grams, one cup of cooked pasta, eight grams of protein, one egg, six grams, one ounce of nuts, or a quarter cup of nuts, seven grams. So three ounces of fish, 21 grams. So you can get, you don't need that much protein per day. You just don't. Exactly. So when you're well, thinking you can of your blend meals, yeah. some of the, the meat protein with obviously some plant-based pro- mm-hmm. protein as well. Yeah. And, and that's what we do a lot in our family to try to obviously cut down on our meat consumption. Yeah. And, and the nice thing too about the plant-based proteins, like, about beans and things like that is they're also high in fiber, which is good. most Americans are not getting enough fiber, uh, mm-hmm. which is leading to other health issues. And, yeah. and uh, so, so yeah, I think that there's definitely you can kind of change your approach on it and know that it, it helps out the environment drastically. And it doesn't mean that you have to become a vegetarian or a vegan. Mm-mm, Kudos mm-mm. to those that you that choose to do That's that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're an inspiration and I applaud you definitely. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, but there's a lot of really in, 
awesome apps out there. That's where I've started using like my net diary or my fitness pal to track some of my caloric intake. Mm -hmm. And it'll also uh, do a lot of the, the, the macro nutrients like fat and protein mm -hmm. and carbohydrates and things. And that's where I realized I'm like, I'm getting way more protein way than I need. Yeah. And yeah. fat and carbohydrates <laughs> and chocolate <laughs> and chocolate. Thanks to my husband help. Uh, I've definitely I mean, fallen I, into the traps of his chocolate um, addiction. Yeah. So darn it. I just, I think the take home um, message is, you know, animal protein, Six ounces, seven ounces a day will max, almost max your, your protein intake, you know, cause you're going to get it yeah. from other sources throughout the day. So six ounces is nothing. So, no. if, you know, for the ladies that listen, if you're out on a date, say, I have to eat the filet. It, it's only six ounces. You know, it's like That's the most right. expensive thing on the menu. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> or if you're a guy like me, say, Hey, honey, I, I've got to eat the filet tonight. I'm sorry. You know, I don't need the, yeah, 18 keep ounce ribeye. <laughs> but you know, I'll no, <laughs> no, that's just ridiculous. <laughs> just yeah, eat the, yeah. treat yourself, eat the filet. It's, it's a lot less or, you know, eat chicken or fish, you know, mix it up. But I, I guess the take home message is this is very doable. This is very doable with awareness and knowledge. That's it. That's it. That's it. So who's out there fighting for owls, Angie? Oh, well, I mentioned it earlier in the podcast, but I'm really excited about this group. Uh, it's called the Owl Research Institute, and they can be found at owlresearchinstitute.org or on Facebook. You can just search Owl Research Institute and their page will come right up and it's really awesome. But as I mentioned earlier, Denver Holt, he is a researcher studying owls and snowy owls is one of the species he studies. He's been tracking snowy owl populations in Barrow in Alaska uh, for years, trying to get a hold of what's been going on with their plummeting populations. So the Owl Research Institute's mission is the long-term study of wild owls in order to educate the public and provide valuable, critical research in order to help figure out how to better utilize resource management for these owls. And then of course they're huge conservation advocates. So there's several species of owls that are studied from, of course, a snowy owl, which we've talked about a lot today, but the barn owl, the Northern hawk owl, uh, the long-eared owl and several others. So I highly recommend that you go to their webpage. It's stunning. There's a ton of information on there about owl, about owls as far as how to ID them and how to better conserve these species of owls. They have owl live cameras, so that will give you hours and hours of fun this holiday season when you're snowed inside. You can watch mm -hmm. owls on their cameras. And so the focus with the snowy owls uh, within the Owl Research Institute is this long-term ongoing project that's been going on since 1992 to understand the population and the ecology of the patterns of snowy owls and lemmings and trying to figure out what cycle, if there is one, what it is, why is it, and is it based on climate change? Is it based on other factors? And so really trying to get down to some scientific answers mm -hmm. about what is going on there so we can figure out how to better conserve them 
and not only conserve, obviously, snowy owls and lemmings, but in general, Arctic wildlife, because what's happening to one or two species is probably oh, resonant so of what's happening it's to so other species. It's so widespread. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yes, please. Uh, this is an amazing group. I've fallen in love. Hopefully we could maybe even get a researcher on the podcast to talk to us. Um, but yeah, check out the Owl Research Institute, uh, their website, their Facebook. It's fantastic. And of course, yeah. if you are moved by the snowy owls and you're moved by Hedwig, if you're a child of Harry Potter and you want to give somebody a great gift this holiday season, you can donate to the Snowy Owl Research Project. They have a, a great way to help fund some of this research uh, and all the information can be found on their website. Yep, yep. I, Yeah, it's, it's just, oh, we're putting all the pieces together, Angie. You know, we look across the planet. We went from Africa to Madagascar to the Arctic and, you know, where we're going next week to Asia, you know, looking at all these pressures. I just, I, I just want to empower our listeners to spread the knowledge, be enthusiastic, become eco warriors, you know, become conservation heroes. We are going to do our best to keep spreading this, this knowledge because you see a species like this that's absolutely gorgeous. You hear their story and it just like after. Doing all the research on these these animals, I just I want to help them. Every single species I want to help. But anyways, thank you for listening. Again, we're gonna keep fighting and we appreciate you as our listeners and just keep listening, keep spreading the knowledge, and we'll be back next week with another species. Thank you everyone. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.